Welcome to the Daily Bible Podcast, a show intended to help you get more out of your everyday time in the Word. This is a ministry of Compass Bible Church in North Texas, and if you'd like to join along with our daily Bible reading program, you can do so by going to compassntx.org and clicking on the Daily Bible Reading tab. Thanks for joining in for today's episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Hey. hey we haven't had one of those in a while. Hey. hey. The funds. Yeah. Hey. You know? What's got two thumbs and says that? This guy. guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, happy uh, Wednesday. How's everybody doing? Oh, we're doing good. Thanks. Good. How are you know. doing? I, w- did, I don't know if I expected to get a response back from that, but uh, well, yeah. Why did you ask the question? That seems very disingenuous. I, you know... I just, I, it's one of those fillers. I was actually double checking that we don't have any birthdays today. And we don't have any birthdays today. So happy birthday to nobody. Happy birthday. No one. That's yep. somebody's birthday today. Yeah. They just don't go to our church yet. Yeah. That, well, that's fair. That's fair. I like you said yet on there. Yeah. Yeah. God's been doing good things, man. We've been seeing people show up at church. Dude, it's been so, so cool to see what God is doing in this little congregation. Yeah. Soon enough, we're not going to be able to see this little congregation. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's awesome. It's humbling for sure. And uh, just such a good group of people. So many of them listen to this podcast. And so I don't want to overly flatter you, but I do want to flatter you. Good job. You, you guys make it a joy to do what we get to do. And so uh, that's what scripture calls you to as, uh, as the church is to make your pastor's job a joy. And you guys do that. So thank you. So that. far, so good. So far, so good. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, how, how does uh, First Thessalonians say it? May you uh, do it more and more. Excel still more. Yeah. Excel. Yeah. That's the King James, I think. Uh, yeah, but it's so, it's just a clutch way of saying it. I, okay. You don't like it. I, so here's my thing. I love, are you anti-KJV? I, I love our ESV and I love our KJV, but I like when the translation sounds like the way I speak. Fair. <laughs> I like, okay. I like it sounds when it sounds like English in 2023. Okay. So let's pull that thread for a second. Let's do it. KJV only churches. Are they wrong? Yes. Okay. Why? KJV. So they're only wrong because of what they suggest is the significance behind their use of the King James version, which is to say that every other English version is wrong. They would argue that their manuscripts, really the, the, the modern manuscripts that we have or their access to the older, more reliable manuscripts are not, uh, are not significant contributions to the translation of scripture because the one, uh, true translation, English tra- translation of the scriptures happened in 1611 with the with the arrival of the King James Bible. So they would say, um, and, and best best case scenario here, hey, God's spoken already. Why do you need a new translation? God has spoken here. And of course, we would say, well, because the underlying manuscript evidence that supports the King James Version was nowhere near as good as we have today. We have thousands more manuscripts, and therefore we have a more accurate understanding of what the Bible actually says. And that's what our goal is. We would say that the original autographs, the original manuscripts are what God inspired. Yep. Which opens up a whole different can of worms by what we mean when we say inspiration. But we don't mean like, oh, someone was really feeling it that day and they wrote it down. Um, we're using 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16, 17. Uh, God breathed out the words, inspired the words, and, that, and that's what we have in mind. So King James Version only churches are wrong. Um, maybe good-hearted i would suggest but wrong-headed and therefore we would we would strongly disagree with their assertion that the king james only bible or the king james bible is the only bible a christian should read 
Yeah. And in fact, even in the New Testament, we don't pick up on it as much. Um, but the, the, the New Testament authors used a translation of the Old Testament. They do. They use the Septuagint. The, uh, sometimes LXX, you'll see it abbreviated that way, 70, the, the Roman numerals for 70. And uh, that's what oftentimes the New Testament writers, the Paul and, and others used. And when they quoted Old Testament scripture, they would use the Septuagint. Jesus even quoted from the Septuagint himself. That's so right. um, translations are, are a good thing as long as they're accurate. And, uh, and that's the important thing. So, indeed, and that's yeah. why we love the ESV. We do. It's a good translate. It's a great translation. It's it's a bit wooden. Yeah, and there's reasons for that, and that has to do with translation philosophy, which is so funny because when the ESV first burst on the scene, I don't know how many years ago now, that was its selling point. Was the NASB, which was like the 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 current evangelical like Holy Grail, <laughs> was too wooden at that point, right? Yeah. And so the, everybody was like, "Oh, the ESV is so much more readable, and the NASB is is too wooden." And, uh, and it's interesting now there have been some additional translations. The CSB is another great one. Christian standard Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like that one a lot. And it's a little bit more readable even than the ESV. And so readability, meaning it's, it's smooth. It, you don't have to stumble over words and, and definitions. You don't have to read with a dictionary in your hand. Um, <laughs> even subject verb agreement, the way it's arranged and everything, oh, just, yeah. it reads a little bit better. But I mean, think of words like lest, right? How many times do you use the word lest? Lest times than you do. <laughs> and it's all over the ESV. Right. Or when Jesus sat at table versus right. the CSB, when he the CSB will table. say that he reclined at the, the table, table. Right. which is far more consistent with our English vernacular. So yeah. things like that matter. But the translation that we chose, why did we choose the ESV? Speaking of it, let me want you to help inform our audience here. Yeah, I, I mean, this is the, the same translation that our sending church uses and has used. The only I've, reason. Yeah, why. that's the only reason. <laughs> no, I've used the ESV for, for years even prior to that. And uh, it's it's to that point, it's a good translation. Um, there are, uh, the, the, like you were talking about earlier, the range of translations, this one is uh, is close to uh, the the original languages in that it captures the idea of what the original authors were trying to communicate there in its presentation of, of the translation. Um, there are word for word translations and thought for thought translations. Thought for thought translations are going to be more summarizations. The the NIV probably, for example, would be closer to the thought for thought translation than the word for word translation. The NASB, New American Standard Bible, is going to be pretty much slammed right up against the word for word translation, um, and then the ESV is going to be probably closer closer to the, the NASB side of things, the NASB side of things, than the NIV side of things. So it's a good Bible for studying, and it's a good Bible for teaching and preaching because it is so faithful to the original languages. So some of the terminology, so you guys listening understand it when you read books about this, we have dynamic equivalence versus formal equivalence. Dynamic being uh, the word order isn't going to matter as much or trying to capture dynamically what the translation says versus formal equivalence, which does seek to preserve word order when possible. So which one is good and which one is bad? Is that a question? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Which one is good? Which one's bad? It depends on on the 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 purpose form, right? I, I think when you're preaching and teaching, uh, it's good to have one that is more in lines with the formal equivalence. You want a, an accurate translation of the text, and to make sure that you're capturing verb tenses, because sometimes things like verb tenses matter yeah, and change do. the meaning of an entire passage. Right. So uh, you want something that that is is closer to that formal equivalence for doing your study and your preaching and your teaching. Sometimes it's refreshing to pick up an NIV or to pick up the CSB or to pick up one that is a little bit closer to that, that, uh, that dynamic equivalence. And there's a range, there's a spectrum even on that side, right. uh, just to, to, it, it, it hits you a different way. And in the same passage that you've read a hundred times can ha- take on a, a fresh impact for you when you read it in a different translation than you've been reading it in. So, um, for personal devotion, I think it's, it's fine to use the NIV. It's fine to use the CSB. It's fine to use the translations like that. 
but for the the deeper study, I think it's important to have that formal equivalence. Now, there are translations that go too far. There's translations like there's one out there called the Passion Translation, where which has <laughs> perverted the text. And there's uh, even even like Eugene Peterson's The Message, right, which is the the slam end of the the dynamic equivalence side of of the spectrum there i mean he's really trying to just summarize the thought of what the passage says and put it in modern language modern vernacular i i, I don't know that i would put the same weight behind eugene peterson's translation called the message as i would i think he calls that a devotional if yeah i'm not mistaken he yeah. doesn't call it a translation because he's not translating it's true he's right he's summarizing right very much a summer a summarization there but if you're doing your study and you want to go deeper the closer you get to formal equivalence the better right and i think the more consistency you can bring to the your biblical intake the better it's going to be typically yep. um, like if you think about memorizing and meditating ha- having one translation in your noggin is really helpful although there are times when you want to pull out the other tools and yep. they have a place yep yeah well let's jump into our esv in uh the book of jeremiah the esv esv the specially sanctified version right the evangelical super version <laughs> <laughs> i haven't heard that one uh, no, English Standard Version, and we are in Jeremiah chapter 14. Uh, things are not going great. Even presently, uh, there's thought that Jeremiah is writing about a future drought during the midst of a current drought, and uh, he's he, he, Jeremiah's wrestling with a lot as, as the role of the prophet here. I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that these were... These were people, and Jeremiah was an Israelite, and though Jeremiah was unique in that he was called by God and set apart by God for this purpose, for this ministry, even from before he was born, it didn't mean that this was all easy for him to, to process and digest. He's still and, a man. Right. Still struggled. Right. And he was being persecuted by his countrymen too. Mm-hmm. And so the back and forth there, we see some of this in verse seven. Um, Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. And so God, Jeremiah is, is pleading with God to be gracious to the people. He's saying, yeah, we're, we're backsliding. We've sinned against you. Uh, oh, oh, Israel, our, our hope and its savior in time of trouble. He's he's pleading on the Lord to change his mind. Um, and yet the Lord says, I'm, I'm not going to do that. They've loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet, verse 10. Therefore, the Lord will not accept them. He will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Don't pray for the welfare of this people. And so, I, Jeremiah, you feel for him because he's conflicted here for his people, and yet uh, he's he's a servant of the Lord and, and doing what, what God calls him uh, to do. Later on in the chapter, he's still struggling with this. Uh, verse 20, we acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we've sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. So here again, Jeremiah is pleading for the people, pleading that God would relent of what he is prophesying through Jeremiah that he was going to do. Is there, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Man, I, was, I took a breath in at the wrong time and just something just hit. Got out my nose. You good? I'm totally good. Okay. Now. Uh, so the question, uh, really quick, just speak to this because Jeremiah is told by God, don't, don't pray. Don't pray. And he's told multiple times and yet he does it. Yeah. Is Jeremiah in sin when he intercedes on their behalf? <sighs> Definitively, like the once and for all answer, settle the matter for all of us, please. In a vacuum. Yes. Yes. God's commanded. Don't do this. Don't pray for their welfare. And yet he is. Um, but there's examples of, of, of some boldness in scripture where, Moses intercedes, Abraham intercedes, right? With Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham interceded and went how many times before God and said, please don't be angry with me. Can I ask one more thing? If you, what if you find this many? What if you find this many? Moses would, would interject when God said, back up Moses, I'm going to, I'm going to blow the people up and start over with you. God 
wait, stop, don't do this. Mm-hmm. And so there's a there's an impetuousness about these men when they're interceding. And, and though, that's why I say in a vacuum, this is a, a breaking of God's command. I think the motivation here is what's what's crucial and what's key. And I think Jeremiah loves his people and loves his God. And he's trying to find a way to, to hold on to both of those realities in the moment. That's really helpful because I think it is, it's complicated, isn't it? Yeah. And I think the emotions that he goes through are complicated, Yeah. which again, only highlights and reinforces the concept that you brought up earlier. This is a person, a man with, with conflicting emotions, a heart to honor God, a heart to preserve the people. Um, because he continues even after God says in verse 11, Hey, don't pray for them. In verse 19 and onward, he, he begins to intercede on their behalf again. Yeah. I mean, he's still trying to, throw something out there. And I, I, I think you're right. I think God does honor that even if he does say, no, I'm not going to answer that. Yeah. Yeah. And really it all comes back to, as chapter 15 makes it very clear, uh, the the pinnacle, so to speak, of Israel's rebellion, Judah's rebellion came under the the reign of a man named Manasseh. And, uh, and Manasseh was just a, a bad bad dude. In verse four of chapter 15, it says, I'm going to make them, speaking of Judah, a whore to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, king of Judah did in Jerusalem. And if you go back and uh, and read about his reign, you get this in, in second, second Kings, not second Corinthians, second Kings. <laughs> chapter 21 in second Chronicles chapter 33. Um, he, he did some awful things, child sacrifice, witchcraft, he even set up false idols in the temple of the Lord. What and a jerk. So, yeah. I mean, he was a despicable, despicable person when it comes to uh, his sinfulness and idolatry. And he was kind of the pinnacle. He was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, where God said, fine, I, now it's over. It's done. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm done. And so this is pointing back to that. And this is why he's not going to hear the prayers of Jeremiah when Jeremiah is saying, please relent, please reconsider. Um, yeah. why, why does everyone suffer for his sins? Well, because it was, it was not him alone. It was the, the nation. They, they were not victims. It's not like he was holding their hands and saying, now come over here and we're going to go come over here and worship these idols over here. They were complicit. They were complicit in it. They were participating in it even. Um, yeah helpful. Yeah. The rest of chapter 15, you get into more of the conflict here. Um, Jeremiah says in verse 10, woe is me, my mother, that you bore me. You get some Job elements here from Jeremiah. And then the Lord says in verse 11, have I not set you free for their good? And, and here there's a glimpse and a reminder that that there was going to be the remnant, that there's still a good in all this, that even in the, the, the bringing of judgment, God disciplines those whom he loves. He loves his people, Israel. This is going to be the ultimate exercise of discipline so far. And yet there's going to be uh, a, a, a loving element to this as well. Um, but the prophet is, is still in conflict here in chapter 15 over what the Lord is going to do. Chapter 16, then more of the judgment. Something that's common is the methods of judging, uh, pestilence, famine, sword. Um, you see those things repeated time and time again, that that's how the Lord was going to bring uh, judgment. And in verse five, he doesn't want there to be any mourning. Don't enter the house of mourning or go to lament or grieve them. For I've taken away my peace from this people and my steadfast love and mercy declares the Lord. Again, this is strong. And he goes on in verses 10 through 13, and he's again unpacking their rebellion. Deuteronomy 28 is the background here again. The the curses that God would bring to his people. He warned them all the way back in Deuteronomy 28. And that's again why this is not just about Manasseh. This is about a history. Manasseh is just the the, the climax of, of their rebellion. Um, but this is this goes back long before him and God had already warned them what was going to happen. But 
he would not make an end to them. Mm, that's a big but. There's, yeah, there's going to be another exodus, verses 14 through 15. The Lord is going to bring them out from the north country this time, not from Egypt, but from the north country where they're going to go into exile as those from the north Babylon uh, would come and take them away. They would return as well. But first, their sin would be punished. And so there's this hope there's this tension of the hope and the impending judgment at the same time and and jeremiah had no wonder he's the weeping prophet he had to live in that tension and prophesy in that tension so would you say as as uh, i'm sure there's bible readers who are wondering okay is this fulfilled has has god done this is this did this happen when he brought them back to the land initially has this happened more recently in 1940 something when he reestablished them as a nation Uh, or is this one of those uh, multiply uh, not multiply uh is this one of those things that's fulfilled over the long course of time, multiple times over? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I was talking with my son yesterday about this, actually, um, this concept of is, is, is we're going to be okay through the whole conflict that's going on right now, which kind of ties into that. Is, is are they back? Are they in the land? Has right. God gathered them back in fulfillment of this? And the, the answer to that question is maybe, maybe this is the beginning of it, right? Because the, the ultimate fulfillment of that is going to be yet future. Now, could Israel still lose their land and go into exile, so to speak? again and be scattered again before that ultimate fulfillment happens? Yeah, they could. Um, or maybe they won't. That we don't know. We do know the ultimate fulfillment of this is yet future. And this is what's so crazy is that, that this informs so much in the world. If you're paying attention right now to what's going on geopolitically, reading Jeremiah is is a, a huge help for us to understand these things right now. Like the, the UN, um, the one of the, the what's his, his role? Guterres in the UN. He is the... Uh, UN Secretary General, and he made some comments recently about what's going on in Israel and said uh, the attacks against the Jews are not happening in a vacuum because the Palestinian people have been suffering under or been smothered under the occupation of their land for, you know, almost however many decades this has been going on. That betrays a worldview that is not a biblical worldview because right. he's saying that the land belongs to the Palestinians when we know, biblically speaking, the land belongs to Israel. And so Israel, the Israelites are in the land right now, but is that the ultimate fulfillment of what he's talking about here, regathering them from the north? No, that's going to take place in the millennial kingdom in the future. And that's going to be an unending occupation that God is going to ordain for all who are true Israel at that time. Some people have in the past suggested that we should read our Bibles with the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other to make sure that we were reading the signs of the times as it were. Would you recommend that we do that or is that something we should be careful with? Yeah, I think we got to be careful because I think we, we've got to be careful not to read too much into the tea leaves, so to speak, and become sensationalists that are date setting and things like that. I mean, but Jesus himself told us, pay attention and, and look. And when you see these signs, understand these are but the beginnings of the birth pangs. Um, the end is not yet. So I think we need to be ready. We need to be able to discern these things. And Jesus called us to be able to discern these things. And, and, and this is what's called having and applying a Christian worldview, a worldview is essentially this. It's the lens through which you view and interpret the the reality around you. So if you think about glasses, you put on glasses so that you can see better. Those have lenses that clarify everything around you, right? Well, the, the Christian worldview needs to have the lenses of God's word through which we view and interpret the reality around us. Mm-hmm. And so we understand everything taking place in our world, whether that's on the, the grand scale or whether that's around your dining room table through the lens of God's word and God's word informs how we interpret these things. That's super helpful. Well, let's turn to first Timothy chapter five. Let's talk about widows. Okay. Yeah. First uh, Timothy five, again, it, it, back in chapter three, 
Paul has told Timothy he's writing these things so that people will know how to behave within the church. And so now he's getting into some details of what's facing people in the church, and it's helpful for us. He talks about two classes of widows. First off, he says in in verses 3 through 8, he says, listen, if a widow has a supportive family with her, that that family can care for her and take take her in and provide for her, that's what should happen. They must do that. Right. They must do that. Uh, Rather than the the contrast being the church taking her in and, and putting her on the financial support roles of, of the church. He's saying the family should should care for this widow if the family has the means and if the family's there to be able to do that, that's the biblical command. They should do that. But then there's those that do need to be enrolled and he gives some, some guidance on that. And he says, if they're a young woman, if they're less than 60 years old, which I guess at this point, uh, Paul considered that to be marriable age at, at this point in time in, in history, he said, and it, not that it's not today, but it, it certainly was then. He said they need to stay, uh, stay active and, and look to be remarried obviously under the the uh, instructions that he's already provided in first corinthians chapter 7 marrying right. a believer not marrying somebody who's been divorced not marrying somebody who's committed adultery so forth and so on within those kind confines but he said they should get remarried however if they're over that age and if they feel like man i i'm i'm beyond that and i'm, I'm not interested in being married anymore they don't have the family to care for them the way that he's already described then yeah the church needs to step in and, and care for those widows but there's an interesting thing here because he talks about those that otherwise might be tempted if they are taken onto the church's support too early might be tempted to leave Christ to go be married. That's interesting, right? That is interesting because what do we do with that? It could have been. So I read something that suggests there, there may have been a class, uh, a group of within the church, a formal group within the church that are not ordained, but there, there were hands laid on them to officiate their role as you are a formal widow of the church and you almost serve like the church nuns. like, like an order of nuns. I didn't right. want to say that, but yes, yeah, almost like nuns. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that that would cause them to, to deny their pledge. Right. Right. Yeah. And by going off and wanting to be married, if, if they were still of marriable age and desires, I also read something that said this could be dealing with somebody with the temptation to go and just marry anyone, to go marry an, an unbeliever, that this that their desire to be remarried because that. of that, that passion would cause them that. to abandon Christ by going and, and joining themselves to an unbeliever in that context. So interesting here in uh, in this instruction, but it's it's purposeful to, to remind us that, man, the, the church is a full-orbed organization here. We're not just about what we do on Sunday morning. We're about the body life of everybody in the church, and the church should have an impact in your life uh, on more than Sunday mornings and the church so it gets in your kitchen, so to speak, right? That's what we're supposed to do with one another as believers is care about everything down to, you know, okay, who should be brought in as a, a widow to be supported by the church? Well, even to your point, I, th- I think there's credibility to suggest that these women isn't, aren't, aren't necessarily an order of nuns, but rather they're being led away to not serve Christ, which is why verse 15 says some already straight after Satan. Yeah. It's not saying they're pursuing a husband. They're pursuing something contrary to Christ altogether and entirely. Right. One other quick point here I want to bring to the attention of the of, of our church here is that the church takes very uh, takes care not to be frivolous or unscrupulous with how she distributes money to those who are in need. Right. And so you notice that there's there's obstacles that Paul puts in the way before even some of the most vulnerable people in the church receive money from right. the church. She has to have family resources exhausted. She has to be a certain age and she has to have a reputation for doing good works and being part of the community. I mean, there's, there's legitimate obstacles that the church should allow to be in place before she hands out money. And I know that's going to come up sooner than later. We haven't actually had this this question come up yet right? in terms of someone who comes and knocks at our door mm-hmm. and if they're homeless or if they have, you know, they, they have their kids in the van and say, Hey, can you give us some money? We're hungry. 
there's a there's a lot more that goes into it than simply just saying oh yeah here's 20 bucks go right. buy yourself some gas or get some 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 food for the kids now, a responsible church has to think carefully and critically about how she distributes the lord's money 100% 100% one more point that i think we need to make in this chapter as he deals with the concept of elders and pastors here verse 22 is so important for us uh, verse 22 says do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others keep yourself pure uh, the concept of laying on of hands is commissioning somebody to a role of a even a ministry leader in the church, but certainly a pastor or elder in the church. Right. And and Paul is directing Timothy, don't be hasty to put somebody in a position of leadership in the church. Uh, make sure that you're thoughtful and careful about that because of the significance and the, the weightiness of what you're you're doing. You don't want to open the door to a wolf in sheep's clothing, or you don't want to put somebody in a position who's not really qualified to have that position, or you don't want to put somebody in a position who has ill motives for that position. And so it's it's important that we are slow and thoughtful and methodical and prayerful uh, before we put anybody into a leadership position in the church. And uh, Pastor Rod and I are committed to that as your pastors here at Compass Bible Church. We want to be very careful about that and what that looks like as we move forward as a church. So one quick point of encouragement. If, if <laughs> So this is something we have heard already a lot. Uh, people have reached out to us and said, hey, you guys need a pastor? I want to be your pastor. I want to be a pastor at your church. And we're thinking, uh, no, right. <laughs> we're not going to do that. We don't know you. We're not even in the ballpark of hiring anybody. Um, if you, if you want to find yourself serving at a, in the pastoral role at a church, I would highly recommend that you be part of that church Yep. and, and show yourself to be faithful and wise and godly. And then even then scripture says, Hey, we should be slow to lay hands on. So if, if that's your heart, I mean, praise God, it's a noble desire as we, as we talked about, but probably should be part of the church and maybe not uh, send us an email and say, Hey, I want to be a pastor at your church. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that was even back in the deacons. That's what Paul's instructions to the deacons were. Hey, let them serve first. Yeah. And then, then we'll talk about it. Right. It's not somebody that's parachuting in going, okay, I'm here. I'm here to be your deacon. <laughs> right. I'm here to be your pastor. <laughs> uh, yeah. And we're, we're not even hiring. So it's funny. We, yeah. I've gotten a couple of emails. Have you, how many emails have you got? Uh, emails have gotten two or three. I've gotten some people in person too, which is even more awkward. That is a bit challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but, uh, there you go. Hey, we love you guys. We're happy to be your pastors. Yes, we're grateful we for you. Honored. And that's, this is part of the reason why we're slow to lay hands on. We, we love you guys and care about you uh, a lot. And we want to make sure that, that uh, we continue to care for you well. That's and right. anybody who's a pastor at this church continues to do that. So mm-hmm. join with us again tomorrow if uh, the Lord wills and the, the rain doesn't carry us all away <laughs> for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. See you guys tomorrow. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. We hope and pray this has been a blessing to you and your time in the Word. If it has, if you would subscribe to this podcast, leave a like, leave a comment, and share it with some friends and family, that would be awesome. If you need more information about Compass Bible Church here in North Texas, you can go to compassntx.org. Again, that's compassntx.org. And we'll be back with you tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Mm-hmm.